Welcome to the After School Podcast. Today I'm talking with Sholi Nicholson. Sholi majored in East Asian Studies at Harvard and is now at Harvard Medical School. We talked about his interest in medicine, his love for basketball, the work he did for homeless shelters in Boston and what he learned from that. And we spent a lot of time talking about race. Sholi really opened up about his experiences as a black student at Exeter and beyond. And we talked about current events and the broader conversation around Black Lives Matter and race in general in this country. Now, I normally don't edit much on these anyway, other than to erase a few ums and pauses and stumbles and so forth, but this one was really especially moving and personal, and so I decided to leave it fully unedited and untouched. I seriously enjoyed this conversation. Surely is someone of incredible character and generosity, as you'll see, and I know you'll find a lot of value in his stories. Here's Shirley Nicholson. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Where are you right now? Are you actually in Boston or, or where are you now? Yeah, so I'm still in Boston. Um, I'm living in Kenmore right now, living in Kenmore, and I'm at school at Harvard Medical School. So I'm a second year um, and I'm currently in my rotations. So we actually just got back to the hospital um, because of COVID. So we came out of the hospital end of March and then started back July 6th. So a couple weeks into my surgery rotation. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you where you are, um, in that, in the, in the medical school process. So you said you're a second year. And so like, how exactly does that work in terms of where you are in, um, cause you're doing surgery, right? Which yeah. is like, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would love to say doing, but more like watching and helping as much as I can, you know? Um, but it depends on the school at Harvard Medical School. The second year is your year of rotations. The first year is kind of condensed of all physiology and pathology. Um, and it's it's a uh, case based. So for most of the first year, we had class from about eight to twelve thirty. So only four hours of class. The rest of the day was pretty much studying to prepare for cases the next day. And, you know, we covered like the main high yield topics and a lot of physiology, pathology, pharmacology, et cetera. And then um yeah, so they have us in the hospitals early. So we started our full year of rotations at the end of October. Um, so I'm about more than halfway through with that. And then I'll have two more years. Um, third year is mainly sub-internships and other classes we have to finish up um, and research. And then fourth year will be continuing some of that stuff and then applying to residencies. Gotcha. And then do you have to do more... You don't have to do more school for the surgery piece. It's like showing my ignorance on how the whole process works. But is, 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 isn't there like a medical school and then there's more oh, uh, yeah. to specifically do surgery? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. This is pretty much only the beginning, unfortunately. <laughs> um, sure. Regardless of what specialty there's residency. So that, that varies depending on what um, specialty you go into. Some are really short, like three years. I think emergency medicine is like three years or four years of residency training. Um, and different surgeries, uh, specialties have different lengths too. So it could range from five years to seven, eight, um, depending on what path you take. Some people even go to dental school and they want to do like oral maxillofacial surgery. So they'll do four years of dental school and then do a couple years of, uh, maxillofacial residency, then two years of medical school, mm. you know, so it, there's a lot of variability, but it'll be a long training. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. But I guess and then, yeah. What makes okay. me feel okay about how long it is, is that after med school, you're pretty much, you can call yourself doing the job that you want to do, you know? So it's not like you're not, you can call yourself a whatever type of surgeon and, and do that work, but you're learning as you do it, you know? Totally. Yeah. You're not, you're not still deep in just textbooks or whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah. You're, you're exactly. doing the, what you've been waiting to do. And what type of surgery specifically are, are you interested in doing? So I'm not 100% sure yet. Um, for the longest time, I've been really interested in plastic and reconstructive surgery. Um, so this is this has been my first few weeks on surgery, and I've been loving it, especially compared to other rotations. But I love plastics so far, uh, the uh, limited exposure I've had to it, because um, you really work head to toe in terms of surgical procedures. And, you know, a lot of times plastics is known in general to the general public as mainly the cosmetic things. And um, I'm really passionate and interested in the reconstructive component of plastics. Like you do 
so much in terms of craniofacial surgery, you know, for cleft lip and cleft palate, or someone was born with different deformities, um, burn surgery, wound care, um, cancer reconstruction. So there's a lot of uh, different subspecialties in plastics. And um, I like it because there's a lot of flexibility in the different procedures from what I understand so far. Um, based on the patient, based on what they want, based on their body habitus, that can determine what technique you use to solve a problem, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still early, so we'll see how that goes. I, I get a week of plastic surgery on my um, rotation in August, so. Gotcha. That's yep. really cool. Yeah, and, and and the ability to help people so directly, it's like, you know, change people's lives, right? And in certain cases, if they're born with something and they might not have ever thought it was possible to, to help them. Right. So that's pretty, yeah. pretty amazing. So how, I mean, and I know you're still kind of figuring out exactly what you'll want to do, but you know, what I want to ask is like, how long did you know you wanted to be a doctor or a surgeon? Like how, how, how long you've been preparing for this and, and what has that journey been like? I think it was always kind of in the back of my mind growing up but at the forefront of my mind was the nba and you know college Ah. basketball and um that was my passion growing up but um it's back it's gonna be back soon yeah it is the orlando bubble right (laughs) um so it was always in the back of my mind but i think at exeter it was more i was thinking more seriously about it and by the time i started college i i knew i was pre-med as a student, but I wasn't 100% committed to this long, it's a long training, you know, like we just talked about. So I think what really helped me make my decision was, it was crazy how it happened, but it was actually some of the classes I had in East Asian studies in college. And um, I mean, we can dig into the weeds on this, but as a quick overview, as a major in East Asian studies, I connected with um, traditional Japanese carpentry And um, my professor had a museum exhibition from these Japanese carpenters from um, obviously from Japan. And they came over and and built like a tea house. They had different joinery that they displayed. There were videos showing their work. And I just loved um, the mastery that came with what they did. Um, So I guess the big picture ideal with traditional Japanese carpentry is there are no power tools or screws and things like that involved and everything is by hand and you use chisels saws and things like that and uh, it takes 10 years of training just to become a carpenter you it's an apprenticeship so you start with just learning how to make lunches properly for the team and then you you know progress to whatever um so i just i just found i love that and their techniques allowed um um, tempos and pagodas to last thousands of years. Like the oldest standing wooden structure in the world, Hōryūji Temple, um, I think it was built in like the 700s AD, and it's remained and withstand withstood earthquakes because of their techniques of not using, you know, screws that can rust and like mastering their hand handwork. So I think ultimately that it's it's a little different, but that's what I wrote about in my med school app that really inspired me to pursue medicine because that showed me that medicine was a medicine could be a lifestyle and it's a life commitment to learning something, mastering something. I think in surgery, you can, I could learn those principles and apply those principles to help people, you know? Um, so that was, that was like my junior year in college, the summer of my junior year where I got to go and, and work over there. And, um, that pretty much committed me to. Medicine. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard that type of, you know, medical school journey. Like, I think that's definitely not the normal answer. <laughs> I think people say, I mean, that's, yeah. that's really incredible. And so, and you, and, and so you said you studied East Asian studies, was that, or was it just one class or was that something that you actually focused on in college? Yeah, it was my major. So they call it a concentration, oh, okay. but, um, so I was pre-med, which means you kind of fulfill the pre-medical requirements of chemistry, math, et cetera. And then I majored in East Asian studies. So you can kind of choose what subfield in East Asian studies you want to study. But I pretty much study Japan, Japanese culture, architecture, um, art, things like that. 
Gotcha. Okay. And and your your mom is Japanese, right? Like you have a yep. connection to Japan. Yes. Yeah. I was born That's there. Right. Oh wow. Okay. Wait. Tell me more about that because I the only only reason I know that is because my good buddy Lars, you know, both of our good yep. buddies Lars, uh, he and you guys took uh, or he and you took Japanese <laughs> in high school, yeah. um, which is is a pretty fun experience. I don't know how much he, he enjoyed it, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, wait, so so maybe maybe we actually just like back it all the way up then because that's actually quite a cool connection, right? Like to be born in Japan and then have that be an inspiration for for what you're doing now. Yeah, so my dad was in Japan. Um so he grew up so he grew up in Arkansas, moved to Boston, Dorchester Mass specifically, and um played basketball, went to community college for a little bit, but um he actually dropped out of community college and in our family there's a band called the world premiere band. It's his cousin's band and they travel the world and they're still playing today and they play in all over. Um, they play a lot in mass too. And, um, so he ended up going to Japan with that band cause he was into dancing too. So when they'd play songs, they had, you know, if they played rap songs and stuff, he would rap the, the rap verse and then do some dancing with it. And they had a couple dancers and stuff. And that's, how he was in japan and he met my mom wow yep wait that's and, wild and um yeah so they met over there and it's funny because they were telling me stories how they didn't speak each other's language and they used to use a, a, a dictionary to communicate <laughs> um <laughs> before google translate you can't uh, right it's a lot more difficult yeah. flipping through the pages I'm trying exactly. to say something <laughs> Um, so he stayed over there for a while. I don't know the details of exactly how long and when he came back and forth. I know he had a work visa, I believe. And then, you know, after the band, after dancing, when he was back over there, he did some construction for a while. And then I was born there and I lived there till I was two years old. Um, and that's when we came back to mass. And then did you, did you take Japanese in between or no, did you start your Japanese, uh, like language process at Exeter (laughs) or... So I picked it up um, just being over there and my mom's primary language being Japanese. So I learned it growing up and I had family. I still have family over there. So as I was growing, growing up, I went back and forth almost. So you've stayed connected with, you've stayed connected with that, that culture and and that part of your, your upbringing and all that. Yeah. Um, Really cool. But it wasn't until um, Exeter that I really learned how to read and write Mm. because I, you know, I was just picking it up in conversation. And what people would teach me. So, Exeter was the first time I studied the the grammar and stuff like that. And yeah, Lars and I had class four years together. It was a very small class, so it was probably what five or six of us. And we, you know, from from prep year, all four years, we stuck together. Only at Exeter, man. That's taking yeah. Japanese for four years. It's pretty yep. funny. I was just over in Spanish class, you know, with the three thousand kids who were in that <laughs> section. <laughs> But wow. yeah, I mean, actually, Spanish. I regret regret not knowing Spanish because it's. I feel like right now it's it's really useful, you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I mean, yeah. I almost took, I almost took German, mm-hmm. but I was like, I don't know why I'm doing that. And then, yeah, I basically took Spanish because I was like, that's yeah. real life. That's going to be the one that I that I yeah. probably should be using. Yeah. Um, although now it's been <laughs> it's been a long time since I've like effectively <laughs> used that language. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So then, so you said. So, so then backing up, I guess, so then, you, so you grew up in Massachusetts then? So it's, it's hard to say, I don't really know where to say where I grew up because I was in mass from two years old to nine years old. We lived in Hyde Park, mass. And then we moved to Manchester, New Hampshire when I was nine. Um, so both. And were you there? Did, were you still there when you were at, uh, Exeter? Like, yep. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And so then, so you say that well before thinking about med school or probably even thinking about East Asian studies, like the NBA was what you wanted to do. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that because I, I I knew, I remembered that, uh, you're obviously a great player in high school and I remember that, but I was thinking, um, and even now, but I just think, you know, must be that most players aren't thinking that at all, right? I mean, just they might think, well, I want to be a good basketball player and maybe I want to play in college or whatever, but I can't imagine 
and maybe I'm wrong about that, but I can't imagine it's like an actual goal for a lot of people. But for you, it really, really was. And like, where did that stem from? Was it just you thought you had the ability and you thought like, let's go for it? Or like, you know, like, where did that actually come from, that that goal? Um, you know, I actually think, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of steps between being 10 years old and going to the NBA. <laughs> and uh, obviously, you have to do well in high school, you have to do get better in college. And but I think for the for the most part, like a lot of kids who get into basketball start with seeing the NBA, you know, seeing the slam dunk, seeing the crowds, seeing how exciting it is and seeing just that lifestyle. So I think I actually think it's more common that a lot of basketball players starting out dream of playing in the NBA and that kind of motivates them to keep working hard. Um, so that's pretty much where it started from, from what I was seeing. Um, my dad was inspiring me to improve and get better. We used to practice a lot together. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, big picture wise, obviously my goal was always to take basketball as far as I could and, and do as well as I could in it. But I, I also knew there were steps in between that and um, I had to make sure to take school seriously, you know, right. and thankfully I did because I haven't really <laughs> played least. basketball competitively since like first year of college or, or Exeter, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I was going to say like, yeah, you, you, taking school seriously. I mean, Harvard medical school, you have to take it that seriously, you know, it's pretty <laughs> extreme. <laughs> Man, that's wild though. And so, so when you were, um, yeah, when you were at Exeter and playing, like wh- where was your head at in that, in that, in, you know, in those moments when you're playing on the team and like, were you thinking, you know, I'm going to go for the best college I can. And like, like, you know, that's just the next step and, and we'll see if we can get the NBA from there. Like, was that really your mentality when you were playing and, and thinking about it or? Yeah, so I think at the forefront of Exeter was trying to win and win for Exeter, win for all my teammates and Coach Tilton and Coach Westlink. And um, and so that was kind of what preoccupied me. But, you know, you're always trying to improve. And, and I knew I wanted to get a scholarship or financial aid to college, you know. Um, so, and then as I played more, I realized just the reality of how difficult it is to make it to the NBA. Sure, you know? So I, sure. I think, I think by high school, I was thinking a little bit less about the NBA and thinking more about college. Um, yeah. Sure. And, and did you actually end up playing, uh, playing for Harvard? No. So I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't recruited, um, I did try to walk on to the varsity basketball team and I ended up making a practice team a couple months into school. Um, but at that point I was, you know, my head was in the textbooks for pre-med and it was a big time commitment. And realistically I didn't see, um, myself, even if I was playing well, really getting playing time or really mm-hmm. working my way up onto the team because a lot of the great players that were on the team weren't getting playing time either. So I had to just make a decision. So I decided, um, that was probably going to be the end of my, that was the end of my basketball career. I played club basketball, but it wasn't, it's not the same, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my club basketball experience was, was at Exeter. It was pretty serious. You know, we were, we were shooting hoops <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah, Man, those are the, those are good times. Yeah. It's basically if, if you had one player and that doesn't include me, but if you had one player who was good, it was like, well, that's the best team now. And then yeah. it just didn't matter. And the rest of us are like passionate around. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are good times, man. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I think that brings us kind of to extra, right. And that's obviously our connection, um, and kind of, you know, the connection of this, of this whole podcast here, but I think, you know, we're recording this end of July. Um, and you know, a lot of stuff has happened in the last couple months to say the least. Uh, yeah. And you know, I think I'd be remiss if I kind of didn't ask you about this because yeah. I, I saw there's an Instagram account actually called Black at Exeter. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, no, I haven't. I've actually been off Instagram for a while. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You got it. You haven't accepted my follow request, Shirley. So that's probably <laughs> why. Um, <laughs> with uh, well, that must be the reason. Um, 
but it's got it's got almost five thousand followers, and uh, even though they just I think they were just created like maybe a month ago or something. Wow. Um, yeah, and and I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure they just just uh, were created a couple months ago at least. And they post basically anonymous kind of quotes um, experiences from Black students, and not just current ones, but but past ones. Mm-hmm. And I think you know they're they're shining a light on something that a lot of people, myself included, were completely unaware of. So, mm-hmm. for example, I saw maybe one of the most recent posts was about. Um, well, I'll just say a lot of the experiences are negative is what I'm trying to say. So for example, one of the, one really? of the, um, yeah. And in a way that surprised me, I think, I mean, you know, it kind of breaks your heart, right. To read. So I, uh, I think one of the recent examples was a student saying that when they got their schedules and they found out their professors, like they, their inclination, you know, while they saw other students saying, Oh, who's in my class, who am I going to be with? How's this going to fit my day? And they were thinking, who is this professor? And do I have to worry about their biases? Um, you know, do they have, whether they're racist or not, do they have like a racist tendency um, or some kind of, you know, uh, predisposition or prejudice that would lead to a bias in the classroom or when grading or whatever it might be. And that, and that you know, it seemed to be shared by a lot of people in terms of the kind of the reaction to that post, um, you know, which, which surprised me. I mean, it's something that I, I would have to confess, I'd be completely unaware of that being a thing. And all in all, that aside, that example aside, there's a lot of this out there um, that I think is coming to the forefront. Forefront, and I have to ask you. I mean, I'm curious. How do you think now about you know your experience at Exeter as a black student, uh, and you know how do you how do you reflect on that now and, and at the time? How do you think about your experience? So, how was my experience at Exeter as a black student? Yeah. And if, if you even thought of it that way, because again, like this is, you know, it's not really something I had thought of, frankly, uh, which is kind of embarrassing to say, uh, until this account has gained so much steam, you know, I mean, um, and it's not just the account, obviously it's what's behind that. All, all the students that are submitting their stories. Yeah. Um, and that's a deep question. Um, yeah. so reflecting on my time at Exeter as a black student, I don't have many negative experiences to talk about in terms of from my teachers or from my friends or my classmates. I personally never experienced something that um, I felt was directed at me because I was a black student. However, I do remember times where I was uncomfortable as a black student Um, and um, you know, I remember one time, I forget what book we were reading, but it was English class with Miss Goldenberg. And the book had a lot of N-words in it. Um, it's Huckleberry Finn, maybe, or something. Yeah, maybe right. that. Um, and I remember when those would come up for someone to read in class, you know, I was really uncomfortable. Miss Goldenberg was nice enough to bring it to the forefront and have a discussion about how we all felt about when those words came up um, and how we would kind of handle those situations. And that was really uncomfortable for me. I remember Um, I don't really have a reflection on what should have been done, but I do remember that being a really uncomfortable experience. I also remember, you know, Exeter in general, I think is its own bubble in Exeter, New Hampshire. And I remember crossing the street one time and a pickup truck drove by and called me the N-word. So those are, I think, the two times that really stand out to me. But I, I will, I, I will say that honestly, it wasn't until more recently, probably in the last two years, that I've thought more about race. You know, just, I feel like just being black or just having an education doesn't necessarily mean you understand these issues critically or pay attention to these issues critically or think about these issues critically. And 
for me, it was a couple experiences I had with the police um, after I got a motorcycle that started to bring a lot of the things that were already happening more to my personal forefront in my life, you know, and reframed a lot of the experiences that I've been having. Um, I guess to go into a little detail about those in college, um, towards the end of college, I purchased a cheap motorcycle off of Craigslist for something fun to do in my free time. And I remember one time I was at Revere Beach parked watching the moon set and a cop suddenly pulls up behind me and the first thing he says to me is, is did you steal this motorcycle um you know that was really off-putting that was that's not how you talk to someone you know and um he was just a little he was rude another time um you know, I was pulled over on the way back to Boston. It was a summer while I was studying for the MCAT and I had forgotten to re-register my vehicle, right? Slipped my mind. I was pulled over. Well, first off, the cop, I just saw a blue truck really close to me, behind me. And like someone was tailgating me and that's really dangerous. So I sped up to create space. And then it was a cop, he pulled me over. And he was very um, aggressive with me. You know, I tried to explain that, you know, I didn't realize that it wasn't registered, et cetera, um, that I totally slipped my mind and forgot. And as I tried to talk to him, he kind of escalated his tone and how he responded to what I said. Um, in that situation, you know, I just stopped and just started saying, yes, sir, you know, and that's fine. And and I explained that I was a graduate of Harvard and I was studying to go to medical school and he let me off and he told me to go register without giving me a ticket. And that's nice of him. But I, I remember after that experience reflecting that for one, you know, if I, I feel like if I didn't had the upbringing I had, if I didn't have parents who taught me certain things or hadn't gone to hadn't learned to respect people, et cetera, then I can see the way that he spoke to me make me want to escalate as well. You know, that's not fair for him, for someone. I feel like it's, it's unwarranted the way these cops were, had treated me or talked to me or escalated the situation, you know, and I could see it going further if I had responded with escalation as well. Um, and secondly, you know, this cop had let me off because I was at Harvard, you know, I graduated Harvard and it had happened multiple times. You know, I'd gotten one time I got a speeding ticket and I wasn't speeding. So I went to court to, to explain that I wasn't speeding and they weren't having any of it. But it wasn't until I said they asked me where I'm a student. I'm a student at Harvard. You know, I've had this motorcycle at Harvard without any problems that they, they agreed with me that I wasn't speeding and let me off. So it's to me it's backwards, you know, they're 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 letting me off because I'm at Harvard, but I was lucky to go to Exeter, you know. I was lucky to go to Harvard and the majority of people don't have that opportunity and that means that you're you're you treat how do you treat people who don't who aren't at Harvard by people? Um so after those experiences that really changed how I started to see um, the things that were going on in my perspective on those things. Um, but to bring it back, you know, so with that perspective, looking back at Exeter, I didn't, I can't say I had mistreatment. I always felt supported by my teachers, my, my classmates. Silly mm. Hall was really diverse from, from, you know, we had a lot of different cultures and we would all talk about our different cultures and too, and even joke about them together, mm. you know? Um, I do remember, though, at Exeter also facing um, the difference in socioeconomic background. You know, like I said, my dad didn't finish community college. My mom didn't really finish school in Japan. And I was 
really fortunate to get into Exeter and go to Exeter and learn at Exeter, but I was put into this whole um, population of really smart and diverse students, but also a lot of wealthy students and wealthy families as well. And I remember that's when I first saw differences in like, oh, you know, I have to, I'm doing cross country. I actually need cross country shoes, running shoes. You know, this is a conversation I got to, you know, talk to my parents about if if this is something we can, we're going to do. Or, you know, spring break, I'm going to go home and stay at home with my fam. And wow, they're going to Turks and Caicos or wow, they're going to Miami. That's awesome. I didn't really see it as, you know, it just, it just brought it to the forefront for me that, okay, I started thinking more about it and realizing that. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those experiences. I mean, that's tough to even hear. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting you make the point about the, the socioeconomic piece and how maybe beyond that, which in that case isn't, isn't necessarily a racial thing, except, you know, insofar as, as it affects certain groups more than others, just by, by the numbers at least. Right. But mm-hmm. it is interesting that you say that, yeah, you hadn't thought about race too much, like in, until you know, it really kind of came to the forefront for you. And yeah, just I- exactly like you described, you I mean, imagine what, what's going on with other, with other people who, who aren't in, in the exact same situation. It's, it's terrifying. Um, and I think that's one thing that like, from my point of view, you know, up until very recently, like, you know, I've always, I was raised in a culture of, or, or within my family, within the way we thought about things in like kind of a quote unquote colorblind, you know, mindset, you know, and we'd hear it, it, anytime it came up, which probably wasn't very often at all, like living in New Hampshire and everything. Um, but it would be like, well, it's, you know, it's just as interesting as like, I remember hearing like race is just as interesting as like hair color or like shoe size or something like that. Like it's just a thing, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't say anything about you, which is, you know, true in, uh, in theory. Um, but it's, it's, it's things like, you know, that, that obviously is kind of a mockery of the reality of the situation for, for many, uh, particularly black Americans. So, it's kind of been one of those things that, you know, even when people would, would share experiences, you know, my instinct was always whether, I mean, some of these conversations did come up at Exeter, whether it was in class or not, but I remember always wanting to say, can't we just like, you know, almost like stop talking about it, right? It's like, can't we kind of pretend like, well, this isn't important and we can talk about it in like a celebratory way or just kind of in a fun way, you know, and like maybe you described a silly hall, like it's just a part of our, our lives and our experiences. Um, but in the same way that you could make fun of, um, or not make fun of, but I mean, you know, tease people about like their hair, right. Or like where they came from, whatever, little things that are just yeah. in, in a benign way. Like that to me was like what I would imagine. Um, and you know, now, now that conversation, if that ever was a, even an idea, which I, I think is, it clearly was not possible. Um, and you know, maybe it is a hundred years from now or whatever, but clearly that has shifted to being not the right way to think about it. I mean, especially in, in this current kind of climate, uh, it's very much, um, you know, now we don't talk about racism, it's anti-racism. So things are, you know, taking, I think, a, a different tone um, in conversation. Um, and that's been a wake up for me, you know, um, but uh, but I'm interested in how have you just been, you know, if you want to share, but I'm curious, how, how have you been thinking about some of the modern conversation around it, um, you know, whether the Black Lives Matter movement or just more broadly, this concept that, you know, we kind of have to bring race to the forefront as, as a conversation to recognize not everybody's starting at the same level here, playing field. Um, and we have to take, you know, more affirmative, literally affirmative action in, in a literal, literal sense um, to like make changes before we can e- ever have a conversation about colorblindness, right? Yeah. So I'll preface everything I'm, I say with, First, saying that I'm still really processing this. I'm still really learning about this and trying to hone my perspective and see things better and understand different sides and so on and so forth. I think, you know, what's really at the forefront now, to say the least, has been going on for a long time. And a part of me feels like the timing of things happening in su- succession more recently 
and how social media is very visible for a lot of people and can capture these experiences and instances in a way that for the most part is is indisputable a lot of times you know with, with what happened with Amy Cooper in Central Park we saw exactly how that went down um with George Floyd etc um is really making this um i feel like making the agenda heard more from the minority african american side personally after the changes in perspective i was having towards the end of college and this happening now it was it really this is the most i think i've been affected by these issues um and it was funny because it was in a way that i had never experienced before and i didn't really know what was going on i remember seeing on the news seeing what happened with george floyd and feeling down about it and you know it's terrible and the next few days i didn't realize it but i was carrying a really heavy weight on my shoulder and it wasn't until maybe a week later that i see um getting aggravated at little things or um not feeling well that um i reflected and sub- i think subconsciously without really me understanding i was really being bothered by these issues um and at the same time i'm doing online classes with school and i couldn't focus um you know you have to study and it's burdening me and i remember it was actually you know in the past i'd never been to a protest i'd never been to a black lives matter protest or anything like that and i was always you know too busy i had other things that were more important to me i was always studying for an exam but now it was a point where i had to go you know i had to make my voice heard and be a part of the crowd and be a part of the people who are feeling this burden because i'm really feeling it now and that actually made me feel better it was the first time i had gone to a protest in boston you know and it was a really cathartic experience and i felt like that burden was lessening a little bit personally um the way i'm thinking about this is that it's a serious issue and it's a very i think it's a very complex issue because involved in it is of course implicit biases right um the experience of every individual person in their upbringing from more broad perspectives of urban versus suburban or growing up on a farm or growing up here or there to also what values your parents brought you up with if your family were immigrants what values they had and brought over what books you've read what classes you take how much education or where you went to school all that kind of ties into each individual person's perspective in how they see what's going on you know and even how they hear what other people are saying and i think it's really that shows me that it's really complex in being able to understand someone else's perspective to explain your own perspective in a way that someone can understand how you feel and ultimately to come to solutions that work um i think there is you know in my experiences that i've had i do think there are serious um systemic problems that are kind of entwined in um the police force in um justice in i think you know we can pretty much name any sector and and talk about how there might be ways that black people are prejudiced against explicitly or implicitly um 
And um, so that's that's how I see that. That's how I'm dealing with this right now. I also, you know, I would say that this uh, this experience has also opened my mind and made me more serious about thinking about the prejudices that other people face. Uh, women, you know, um, people who are gay. And, you know, it's not the exact same problem, but I do feel like there are a lot of similarities in the issues as well. Um, and that has, it's kind of made me want to make sure that I take other people's problems seriously too, the way that I want my problem to be taken seriously. Yeah, I mean, that's a very beautiful perspective because, yeah, it's, it's, you're right, it is different in, for different groups, even when it's a kind of parallel ish experience. But um, there are, you know, all kinds of differences. But yeah, it's true. Um, and I do think, I, I do think those conversations too are kind of coming up to the forefront along with, along with, you know, Black Lives Matter and these other, other kind of conversations. Um, yeah, it is. It's what scares me about it is that it's, you know, I, I worry about solutions like, like you kind of hinted at, I mean, given the complexity of the problem and you have scenarios where it's like in your, like in the example you gave of getting pulled over, like now you have this individual moral case of like, why is this guy going after me and it's like you know and and that's you in that moment have that experience and it's like you know and then he is later going to be like well you know i don't know who you are and like you know i and and whether he knows it or not he's stereotyped like he just absolutely is right even if he claims he wasn't he might even openly say he is but he's going to justify it in all these other ways right based on what he's dealt with maybe that day or something right um sorry and so that that is a really tough thing right like when you when you when you incorporate that element and and you make it a kind of you know police versus like the black community right it's like uh, and even if that's what it needs to be right now based on the behavior that we're seeing from the police like just to put it mildly i mean crap right so that that is maybe that's what it needs to be but that's it's just a scary thing thinking about you know i mean ferguson was 2014 right i mean that was so it's like you know, where are we going to be in another six years and trying to think about a more positive place? Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, but I, I don't have a really solid understanding of kind of what that world looks like uh, and kind of how we get there in, in a positive way, you know, where we build, build our, our togetherness again. I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, either. I mean, when I think about I could talk about things that I would like to see and I think would be beneficial. Um, I know personally, it's really benefited me to be from a cross-cultural background, but also to take, to go to school like Exeter, to go to Harvard and to take classes on things that I had never even heard of before, you know, and that really opened my mind to other people's experiences. Like I remember even taking a class on Islam and you know, that's just one class. It's just a surface level thing, but I really get to learn from, learn some truth about it. And then also see how that truth, even within Islam is taken in different perspectives in different ways. Mm. You know, I think it's really important to be able to understand that the way you see something is not the way everyone else sees something. Um, you know, I mean, the way I see something, I'm not, I'm not saying you, mm -hmm. I'm just saying in general. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's education, um, in schools or training, you know, training about how we're human, how our brains work, you know, we categorize things subconsciously quickly and it takes deliberate effort to keep us from stereotyping to keep us from grouping subsets of people into categories in our mind subconsciously 
you cannot be racist but still be and still categorize people. We all do it or, or different things, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I think as soon as we can all work to develop different perspectives and understand different perspectives and um, that will help and be trained in that or, or learn that. But it's hard with these issues because there's, these are life and death historically. Um, and they're very heavy emotional issues. Like I explained, you know, and, and sometimes, and, and even the way the emotions come out is not always clear. It's not just anger. Mm-hmm. And it's not just anger. It's not just retaliation or whatever it is. There's a lot of nuance to how someone feels in a particular moment. Um, so mm-hmm. it makes it difficult to really make personal progress in these issues. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you, uh, sharing your thoughts on it now. I mean, you know, I mean, I think this is, it, it, this is a positive conversation. I, I love hearing your points of view and, and talking about it. Um, you know, it's a shame that it's, it's how we have to spend the time, right? Because, and not that we have to, we want to, but it's, you know, I wanted to talk to you before the George Floyd murder, right? And like, we talked already before that um, and, and reached out and it's like, just based on the times, it's like I'd be remiss not to, to talk about this because it's so, so important. Um, and yet, kind of going to the conversation we were having, it's like, you know, I want to live in a world, and, and I think to some degree it is, but I mean, I, I want to live in the world where it's like, this is the least interesting part of, you know, a conversation we could have, right? Like you're, you're out there working to improve people's lives, literally save lives, like studying all these fascinating things and that that is the core of like our conversation and who you are and what what does worry me is like i'll I'll be honest like before this conversation i thought you know why why do we need to talk why should we go there right just like because it's like there's so many things that that surely would want to talk about that i want to learn about surely and it's and yet it's also impossible not to because it's like it's 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 super important um and you know not only for you to share experience, but it's important for, for anybody listening, right. Or just people out there having the same experience to understand, to reflect on it. Um, and you know, I, I, one day, right. I don't know what this world looks like, but it's, um, it's like when people say, if we're still in this position, like when we're on Mars, right. It's like, then we really made a big mistake and it's like, that's the kind of thing, right. It's like we're, we're aspirationally. Um, I think there's, I mean, a lot of work would be to put it just too mildly, but it's like, there's a ton of work to, to do just, just to say the least, um, before that, it's just that that is, you know, how I'd like to be able to like raise my children one day where it's like, I don't have to, um, you know, I mean, they probably won't be black, let's say like, or they won't be perceived black, but Mm -hmm. having to have them have these conversations with me and it's like then with their kids and then like that whole thing. And in your case, right. The same deal. It's like, that's just such a horrible thought, you know, it really is. Uh, and like the lack of progress feeling, I mean, it's just very heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean to like make that a pessimistic, <laughs> um, no, you know, true. thing. I mean, I, it's just, you know, I, I think there is a, a lot of reason for optimism, but I just mean, yeah, it's tough, right? It's, it's very tough that in 2020, um, that, that this conversation has to be had at, at the level it is. Yeah. yeah. I will say, I do appreciate you bringing it up, bringing it up, even if, you know, it's a very soft, um, tender topic for me. I did anticipate potentially talking about this, and I appreciate that you gave me the opportunity to talk about it because on the daily, at least for me, when I'm in the hospital or I'm in medical school or even people I hang out with, it's not always something that comes up. And I would love to share my perspective or hear someone else's perspective on these things, but it's not commonplace talk, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's actually, I feel like right now it's, it could be a dangerous conversation. Mm. Um, in in my position, you know, if I'm a medical student and I talk to this attending doctor, who is my supervisor and is responsible for giving me an evaluation and he's not, or she's not African-American, 
and she doesn't really understand where I'm coming from and not a person who may understand I could share something or I could say something that doesn't fit the status quo. It doesn't align with what she says. And there's so many, it could go wrong. It could be bad, you know? So it's hard to talk about these things every day. And um, so I appreciate you bringing it up in a, in a, a setting where it's mutual to express how we're thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on it. It's really, really important to me. And, and um, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I, I want to, maybe we can uh, shift topics a little bit, but it's something that's, it's, it's probably has a lot of relevancy, but um, you mentioned how you, some of these recent conversations have had you thinking about other people's experiences and um, other groups um, that may be being discriminated against or having different um, experiences. And you, I mean, it just made me think about, you clearly have a deep care for other people, not just through medicine and through everything else you're doing, but just that's how you think about things. And it reminds me of this project you did when you were uh, an undergrad at Harvard, where you volunteered at a homeless shelter, but you did a lot more than that. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I'm curious, and maybe this could be one of, one of the last things we talk about, but I'm just curious. Um, and I think it reflects very well in your character. Um, and I'm just, I'm interested in what was that? What was that project that you were doing? What did you learn about homelessness and, and that problem? And, you know, how, how have you been thinking about that? Mm -hmm. So when I was, the biggest thing that stood out to me when I started at Harvard, you know, I was all wrapped up in, wow, this campus is amazing. Like, this is, this is so awesome to be here. Like, these people are awesome. These teachers are awesome. But when I walked back to my dorm, crossing through Harvard Square, you know, right across the street from the gates of Harvard are people who are homeless. And that was really, I remember that being, I was just shocked by that. It didn't really make sense to me, you know, with all this wealth and education and bright people and people who are working to improve things on one side of literally the street of Massachusetts mm -hmm. Avenue and others on a, across the street sitting on crates um, with a cardboard sign and who, would, who were there every single day, sometimes in the winter too. And I knew I had to get involved in that and at least do my part in helping those people. And so I started at the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter, which I found out about in my first year. It's a student-run homeless shelter in Harvard Square. Um, and the guests, the homeless guests can stay there. I think it's two weeks. You know, it, it's a lottery, but you get a, two weeks to have a bed. And you eat food, et cetera. I mean, you have meals provided. Um, you have resources provided as well. And I wanted to kind of help these people in a way I felt was tangible in their life. So I applied to be a resource advocate. And there you, you work at the shelter, you take shifts and you work one-on-one -on -one with these homeless guests and getting them the resources they need. Um, and that ended up being, whether it's identification cards, glasses, mm. shelters, um, excuse me, uh, clothes, um, other places to get food, things like that in their life that will help improve their life in some way. But sorry, and you we, said they were there for, they're there for two weeks. Or they're allowed to be there for two weeks. And then do they like go to the back of the line type thing? Like they, they get the two weeks or they can, when can they come back? Do you know what I mean? It's lottery. So you get the two weeks and then you got to try and, Oh, you win again. So you're out and then you yeah. hope to win again. Okay. Yep. Um, okay. And one thing I liked about the resource advocate role was that you could help the homeless people apply to housing. Um, but I quickly realized that when you apply to housing, you were lucky to hear back within a year, if that. So there's still we're really still not helping them solve their problem of homelessness. And I learned a lot about homelessness at that first stage that a lot of these people who are homeless had college degrees 
which I was shocked to learn about. A lot of them were really hard workers. You know, I remember some people who would wake up early in the morning, go to a job or a temporary job that they had, come back, sleep, repeat it every day to try and save up money to do the next step, you know? And unfortunately, it's a really vicious cycle of not having a job. So you don't have an so you don't have an income to afford housing. And if you don't have housing, you don't have an address or um, a mailing address or a mailbox, et cetera, to get jobs, you know, to put on a job application. So you're pretty much stuck. So that's when, you know, some time went by after I did that, I kind of stopped doing that. And I came up with the idea that for the homes for the homeless program, um, where I would take one really hardworking homeless person and fundraise to provide them the housing first. Um, and that way they would have some solid footing to get the job and to make an income and to hopefully take over the rent after that. Um, so that started the project. I met someone named Tony when I was at the shelter, which is one of these people who was previously an accountant. So he, he went to school, he worked a long time and unfortunately he became homeless when he lost his job and could, you know, he wasn't in touch with family, et cetera. And so I started that GoFundMe and a lot of people donated, um, a lot of people from Exeter community, family, friends. And I think it was, I raised about close to 3000 or so. And, um, that money went to the first payment of, you know, I found housing for him and I paid the rent for him. Um, and then, you know, we got a lot of press and the news, spare change newspaper and different, different. Um, I think there was in the globe too. I don't remember. But then once we got press, people started reaching out with potential job opportunities. And that's when I was really getting excited, but then I saw something really different in the person I was helping in Tony. Mm. So he started, he was telling me, no, I wouldn't want to take this job or, you know, some, he, he was offered an opportunity to be an accountant at a woman's health company in Harvard square. I forget the name of it. And he said, no, that's not really the field I'm interested in, you know? And that's when I was like, whoa, I, right. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you know, this is your opportunity to get back on your feet. I mean, yeah, they're handing yeah. you this job and they know your situation. And wow. he just didn't want to do it. And obviously I can't force him to do it. Um, so, and that's where, where did that come from? I mean, where, do, where do you think that came from? So in retrospect, I think that came from, so Tony was chronically homeless. So he had been homeless for many years, you know, more than three years. And sorry about the knocking. Um, so when you're homeless that long, as I got to know him more, he explained to me that homelessness, especially in Boston, um, is something that you can get used to. There's plenty of food available where you won't starve. There are places you can get clothes and eventually you learn the ropes to where you have everything you need. And at the same time, you have less responsibility. Um, wow. And so he, I think he had gotten comfortable. Also, this project was, you know, just me. I mean, I had some other students help me and get involved as well, but I think we needed a psychological support system as well. I think in hindsight, if I could do it again, I would connect the, the clients that I worked with early on with health services. And I think he needed support psychologically to make that transition back into normal life. You know, do you think, do you think that, because when you said that you were surprised as am I right now, that so many seem to have either, a, you know, strong work ethic or, a, or actually an education of some kind, um, so for those, those groups, you know, I, in my head, I would separate those from people who are either, you know, drug addicted or have like schizophrenia, right. Or something like that. I mean, I'm sure every, um, you know, city is different. Every homeless shelter is going to be, have a different community and so forth. But, you know, did you also see a lot of that, uh, or 
were you, you know, on the whole, like, like in, in, in which case, if somebody was in that situation, it seems like yeah, it would be a very different approach. Cause you couldn't say, you know, let's get you a house and, and the job as an accountant, right? Like that wouldn't even work for them. Yeah. So did you see both of those groups? No, I mainly saw because of the Harvest Square homeless shelter, it's a sober shelter. So for the most part, the guests that stayed there were not on drugs. Um, some did have psychiatric comorbidities. And yeah, I didn't really screen for that. You know, mm-hmm. I picked Tony because I had a relationship with him. He had an education in the past. He had showed he had showed me over the course of many months that he was dedicated to this. But, you know, it turned out mm-hmm. that it was too much for him to take that next step. Wow. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I and I someone um and you could probably correct me on this and somebody would, would would tell me i'm wrong but when it comes to those more dire situations if somebody's in a real real unfortunate position just as a person right where they yeah whether it's the drug have, have taken them down or you know they've got some kind of mental health issue that is so severe then it's like well you know you don't want them on the street and you know there's there's i'm sure there's solutions out there to help them and support them get them the help they need um but it, you know it it seems to me it'd be miles more difficult in that situation. If you're in a position where, you know, you stumbled, uh, you got, you know, in this bad cycle and, you know, you kind of ended up on the street, but have the faculties in theory, um, to kind of, you know, get back out there. Um, you know, it, it's, it's also just a side note here. I mean, speaking of the socioeconomic status piece we talked about before, like if I were in that position, I, I know that I would, I would have somebody I could like live with. Right. And like, I could, whether it was family or not, like I, I'm, and I'm sure of it that I could find a way. And, um, and you know, depending on what time in my life, let's say maybe just my parents, right. Or something like I would, I would have somewhere to go, um, which is, is not something that everyone can say. And so I'm sure that plays a factor as well, right. Like not having a close family member or something like that, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so in this, in this case of Tony, if he's, um, I mean, do you think that his situation, like you said, of the chronic homelessness, but somehow being able to survive that way, I mean, do you really think that it's, that any of that is like, I don't know. I mean, basically what is, what is the thing that he's really missing about his experience? Or is it actually that, like, I'm sure he doesn't like it, right? I mean, so like, you know, what, what is the suffering that he's experiencing that maybe he's not like registering, you know what I'm saying? I mean you almost, you're almost making it sound like maybe he has a decent life and it's hard to imagine that that could be the case, but is that kind of the case in, in his situation or? I think that's what he was telling me. We had many conversations over the few years that I worked with him and he told me that he was comfortable, you know, and that became more clear as we worked together longer. And ultimately when he decided not to take the job, you know, and he, pretty much decided to move out and it was almost as if as the responsibilities came back and as the requirement for him to take the next step were more to the forefront, he stepped back, he backed off. Right. Wow. That is, that's incredible. That's man. I mean, it's, but again, it, it, it goes to, to, your character, I think, I mean, you, you know, always thinking about trying to help other people. I mean, um, you know, most people don't, don't think that way. And, uh, I mean, I mean, I don't mean to say that as like a knock on humanity. I just mean, most people, even if they want to, right. Like they just don't take the active steps to put themselves in tough positions to help other folks. Um, if it doesn't get themselves something, you know, right back. And, um, so, you know, I really admire that about you, uh, and not just in that, but then, but then, yeah, this, journey you're on in, in medical school to, you know, do, do something that you think is going to have a major impact on people's lives. Uh, it's really, really admirable. Um, yeah, seriously. Appreciate that, Ryan. Thank sure you. thing. Yeah. So any, anything, um, anything else you wanted to chat about, uh, before we, we wrap up here, I know we've been talking for quite a bit and you've been really generous with your time. Uh, <laughs> I know you're busy to say the least. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I had to step out of the hospital for this. So, <laughs> uh, um, thankfully, we have weekends off as med students. Um, oh, great! Just studying to do today. Um, I guess if there's one more thing yeah. I could pick to talk a little bit about briefly, would be um, the website that I used to do. 
Hmm. And I don't do it anymore because med school is super busy. But I think there's something really important that I learned from that and and worth kind of just sharing to classmates. And I think at the found, you know, so long story short, the website was ambitiousstudent.com that I started after college just to put the stuff I learned out there about how to do well in class and take school seriously, et cetera, et cetera, to, to everyone, you know, free website to the general public, anyone who's interested in improving their, their grades. And I think at the foundation of that website was the idea that doing well academically has very, has less to do with how smart or intelligent someone is and more to do with how they do school, right? Hmm. Are they showing up to school every day? Are they developing relationships with their classmates and teachers? Are they getting help? When they need help from other people, are they studying efficiently and effectively to learn what the test is going to test, all that stuff. Um, And so I think I just wanted to share that and, you know, um, perspective that I was really fortunate to be able to develop and um, help some some uh, students with that, too. That's great. And and so and you were trying to, like you said, help students who were 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 not succeeding, but. It's like they're just not playing the right game, right? They're not like exactly. strategically. <laughs> and I think, yeah, that, that makes total sense. Um, and then we all know those kids who are, you know, out there and they could probably just not read the book and still still be <laughs> fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Definitely does not apply to me. So, um, <laughs> Same. but that's awesome. I mean, that's another example. Uh, and yeah, that's something that like, you know, maybe you or, or I, but just being in, in, a, in a situation where you're raised to like to, to value education in that way and think about that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe, you know, like having my parents help me with homework when I'm a you know child and like teach me that like, Hey, you know, you got to get this and this done. And yeah. it's like, if you don't have that, yeah, you're, you're just swinging uh, from the hips. Right. And, and could find yourself spiraling and when you never really, we never had to, right. You never were, were, were meant to do that. So. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Amazing. Well, thanks Sholi again, um, for, for joining, uh, and, and I love this conversation. I, I think it was really important and, and powerful for me. And, uh, I, I appreciate you sharing your experiences with both your career and things you've been doing and, and kind of how you got into that and also what's going on today. So, um, thanks again. I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ryan. <laughs>